0: <laughs> really? Yeah, so I've been learning Japanese. I thought I was probably butchering it, but yeah, I've been learning Japanese like uh, quite religiously. I would say like at least once a day, I'll spend like uh, half an hour to an hour uh, doing like these flashcards, listening to conversations and stuff, and trying to pick up okay what phrases that I miss out. And stuff. Uh, it's really, really fun. I, I just got. I really got into the kanji element as well. Most I've, people hate it. I've,
1: I've been there. I, I've. I. I hate it now, but I've loved it before. But Fwad, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna quickly introduce you here, and let's get into the podcast. All right. So yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Let's, let's do that. Yeah. Uh,
1: you found it, everybody. It's the Japan Web Podcast coming at you to the back end of Tokyo, the armpit of Asia, Shinjuku. And joining us today is the lead singer of the band not the, the, the long-forgotten um, environmental uh, movement. Kyoto Protocol, the band lives. The movement on the environmental side is replaced with something else. I don't know what anymore. Uh, but Fod is the lead singer and an economist from uh, based uh, in, in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. And he joins us today on the podcast to discuss music in the post-COVID era, how to survive through it. Play some songs and uh, and 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 talk some shit, talk some economy. So, Fwad, thank you for joining.
0: What's up? What's up? What what? Japan in the house. Hello, everybody.
1: Um, how was my introduction? Was there anything else that you would like to add in there, or uh, you know?
0: That was very good. I particularly liked your pronunciation of Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, quite on point. Oh, was it?
1: Okay, it's not good. an Easy one. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking today before I came here, I was thinking like it's the Australian animal, like a koala, but a koala, koala.
0: Absolutely. There was even a video game called Koala Lumpur and it's spelled like koala the bear. K-O-A-L-A. It's kind of like a lesser-known common San Diego kind of thing, except it's a koala bear solving mysteries and stuff. That's what I gathered from it. I think it's a video game from the 90s.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound like <laughs> anything that would happen these days. A koala <laughs> lampoor, <laughs> you get kicked not, out of yeah. the room. You get kicked out of the room. Um, <laughs> okay, so you we, we did a podcast about two years ago. Um, and it was when I uh, had the original co-host on, uh, Tom Molesky. Uh, he quit because he's, uh, he's a bit of a cheap guy. He didn't want to spend any money. Uh, investing in gear when we went remote and i had a I was having a kid at the time so i wanted the gear i'd lent him so i could call my parents back home and let them know how the child was coming along uh, i didn't tell him that um, this, is, this is breaking news uh <laughs> <laughs> but I, you some, heard it here first man some of the things we were talking about last time were um this was like when covid was just really kicking off uh and we 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 believed in COVID, but I remember you and I kind of being um, in simpatico on the reaction, the, the draconian uh, measures that were going on, this immediate, we all must just follow this one thing and obey. It kind of felt like this dystopian nightmare, which is kind of what it's become. Uh, We were talking about delivery apps, Gojek, the app economy and stuff like that. That's also kind of moved on to just digital QR code, um, health monitoring and things like that. I'm kind of ranting here, but what I was hoping to say is um, we've. In the past two years, it's we're living in a crazy different time period where you just don't go out to live shows unless you know the wink wink right people to call up and invite down because you might get some some weirdo there uh, who will rat everybody out. Maybe you don't know, but that's kind of what we're led to believe these days. So uh it it, it, it's coming back in tokyo right now where more people are doing shows and it's becoming a little bit more open um but going with what i'm saying here right now fwad what's the uh as like a as an as an old school um rock band kyoto protocol you've been making music but is it more or less the same as what i'm describing on the tokyo side of things or is it different
0: it is a little bit different. It's very interesting to hear the, the Tokyo side. And you know I, I love Japan a lot, right? Like yeah, we've you've been, been
1: here a few times and you,
0: you, you A lot of times. Five times in total. Um four times music related, one time for the Rugby World Cup 2019. So just before COVID hit. Right. Uh, I was in Yokohama for a week. And uh yeah, so you know, got a lot of friends there, uh particularly in Tokyo and also in Osaka. So, yeah, it's quite interesting to hear how you guys are doing. I think for us, uh, I don't know. Uh, in Malaysia, we don't really have that fear of somebody going to the gig and ratting you out. I think uh, when people hold or hold the shows, there are pretty clear rules that have been set in place. Like uh, if the original capacity of the place was 100, you have to do it with 50 now, 50% only.
1: That's what right. we had as well, yes.
0: Right. So as long as they're doing that, um, and then uh, what they do is they get everybody to do the sliver test before they go in. So come a little bit earlier so that you can do the sliver test. And then we had a pretty good show in November last year. So we managed to catch a little bit of a window where uh, the case numbers weren't so high. Malaysia was looking quite uh, all right at that point. Uh, it probably got a little bit worse after that with Omicron arriving on our shores. Uh, but yeah, we, we had a couple of shows where we were able to to, to relive that experience. It was nice. Uh, but I can't say that what we experienced was the de facto for all shows. I know some other people had a bit more trouble. I think uh, larger scale shows, we are talking about hundreds of people and that's without the capacity re- reduction. And then, you know, um, the breasts show up and say like, oh, it's just in compliance? And then they're kicking a fuss about it when, you know, you laid out the rules early on. And I find that quite strange because uh, it, in our example, it went pretty well, but in other examples, uh, they kind of um, either played dumb or played too smart. I, I I don't really know what happened. So some major shows got shut down, and that's kind of spooked the local scene here as well. Uh, so maybe there is a semblance of what you described as uh, is there a rat in the house? We we don't know who's ratting this place out, uh, except that you know this happened in a place that's not just some live house. It's pretty big gig venue that on a normal day you could uh pre-covid you could fit like 2,000 people inside yeah so 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 that scale I think that's what's being targeted at the moment but um in 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 KL those live house style places where it's like 100 people uh I think that's less of a danger at the moment yeah
1: so there's kind of a radar that you can fly under in a way
0: or um, maybe it's, it's not, not so it. high value targets to them.
1: Then maybe that's it. Um yeah. Isn't it? Do you think it's weird that you have to go get a, a a swab your your mouth to go watch a guitar player? Is that still weird? Because <laughs> uh, I, I look at all this stuff and I I know it's happening and I know that if you want to go do that, that's what you got to do and all that. But like now that for me, it feels like it's just like. It feels like bureaucracy, medical bureaucracy is just everywhere and we're kind of got to live with it. But do do people are people like, um, oh, my God, I'm so glad that they swabbed us because now I know we're safe. Has anybody ever said that to you or or is this just like, oh, man, we just got to get through this and then we got to get through this. It's like getting frisked at the airport. Um, No, I don't have any bombs. Okay, you can touch my asshole. And then you get on the plane and and get a double whiskey soda. Is this kind of what, is that what it's like?
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's people getting normalised to you know getting uh, the asshole touched and then having a whiskey soda after pretty much. <laughs> Use your analogy. Uh, yeah, people are. Uh, I, I definitely know some people who who feel like okay, this is good. Um, uh, I, I feel safer knowing that this is being done. Uh, they marked out like plots on the floor, little spots with with the necks uh, in masking tape for where you're supposed to stand and stuff. Uh, By the end of the night, nobody's standing where they're supposed to stand, and the the, the mosh kit still carries on. But um, I think what's nice about the Malaysian scene is that even though that happens, I think there's this unwritten rule that you don't screw with anybody else that's not going to participate in the mosh pit or what. So there's that um, unwritten rule uh somehow so so that's all good um if you really want to get close and sweaty to somebody that's on you you know um but yeah uh, so I, I guess people can live how they want to live you know what i mean yeah that makes yeah. sense
1: um it, it, japan's kind of a a very like health oriented society uh, and a lot of the um the thing that like that's very different about the like the, the the rock scene in, in, in Tokyo or the music scene in Tokyo and the music scene in Kuala Lumpur is here. The expats are, are, are I think are a different breed. Um, and sometimes I think that they're a little bit more on the cautious side of things than perhaps it would be in Malaysia. And um, you know, like if there's a giant, do you guys got a lot of expats over there that come and go? Cause one thing about the scene over here, I'm not really involved in it anymore, to be honest. I'm doing more music production at home, but what I found is that if you're if you're relying on like an expat scene, there's just such a high rate of turnover. It's kind of hard to get it for a long time. Is that the same thing? I see. Is that the same thing, in Kuala Lumpur, or is it more like um, lifers and stuff? You know.
0: Um. It really depends on the circles that you are operating in, I would say. There are, we do have our own, um, well, uh, how would you call it, like uh, areas where expats usually congregate and stuff like that. And yeah, similarly, majority of them don't last very long. And I think maybe the key difference is that um, when COVID happened, I think a lot of people left and didn't really come back. Uh, and now we've got a whole new batch that are coming in with the price of oil being above 100 bucks, and Malaysia being quite tied into that whole oil and gas value chain where I think having some people come back in uh, vis-a-vis the oil and gas um, employment. yeah. So I think there was a large swath of employment changeover in the expat community here. Yeah. Uh but yeah, uh, similarly we don't really depend on them too much for for, for say like attending shows and stuff. Yeah. We we've we, we've have uh we, we have our own fan base that's local, so uh hopefully they're lifers. So some people come and go. Some people I guess either outgrow the band or outgrow music or they got uh they got other priorities. Uh then they start to uh not be so active and stuff. So yeah, um, we've had to navigate quite a few rounds of that, right? After being a band for twelve years now,
1: yeah, I would so imagine. That, cycles. Yeah, um, so, oh, I was going to ask something else. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, closures of live houses, or um, uh, more. A lot of uh, younger people in Tokyo tend to be shifting towards um, hip hop, where but not live band hip hop. So they make their own tracks and they go with their own tracks. Is that going on in Kuala Lumpur as well, or is, is it still mostly um, bands? Or, what, do you know what I mean?
0: That's very cool. Um, I The gig that we played at, uh, I, I can't say that I have that much time to, I, I wish I did, right, to be a bit more plugged into the local scene hearing out different acts and, you know, doing a little bit of curation, especially like if you we were to organize our own live shows and stuff, but uh, work's getting a bit tough. How would you say? Shigotozuke uh, Mainichi. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Very yeah, good. so, so that's, uh, th- that's what's going on right now. Uh, but the gig that we played in November, one of the acts was this uh, really sick youngin. His name is Rudin. Uh, he does hip hop with uh, backing track first and then halfway through he has his whole band come up and they do this whole rap rock thing that's uh, modern and not really like uh Limby Skate kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, I, but hip hop, uh, they have a lot more of their own ecosystem that they operate in. Uh, obviously, it's been a bit tougher with, with COVID and all of that but, you know, for them, I, I think they have a pretty good following on the ground and stuff. So, yeah, uh hip hop is is big in Malaysia. Some of our biggest acts are, are hip hop acts, yeah. Oh okay. Like people like Joe Flizzo, um for example, yeah, like really really big uh guys. They even uh, they they even work on like Def Jam records the the Asian version and stuff. So like the the that level. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Um you guys Kyoto Protocol you've released two singles in the past couple of years, right? Um, nothing Lasts Forever, and the new one. Um, Faded Lights. Faded Lights, yes, F- thank you. Faded yes. Lights, yeah. Um, so the, are you guys, do you have your own studio now, and are you mostly doing um, live tracking, or have you moved to, like, uh, plugging guitars into computers and and just going in the box, as they say?
0: We were quite fortunate that over the span of the two years, well, fortunate and unfortunate for different reasons. Um, I think at the end of 2019 slash beginning of 2020, we uh, started up Kyoto Studios. So from Kyoto Protocol to Kyoto Studios, we have our own space now. Um, we were hoping to you know, pre- do more content apart from music as well. In that space, uh, we did like some co- collabs where we invite people over for covers and stuff uh, where where we get to have that experience of collaborating with the different artists and then learning to work with them. It's always usually quite an enriching experience. I, I might show you a link or two. That sounds good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then obviously there was a few lockdowns that happened. And in the midst of one of those lockdowns and we had a small window to record... That's when we did Nothing Last Forever and that was recorded in 2020, I believe. Um, But I think uh, we had to kind of wait for it to uh, until the next year for it to come out, 2021. Um, And then we had a similar sliver of time in between the lockdowns again where we could hit the studio and this time we had written another song called Faded Lights. And uh, both of which generally were tracked at Kyoto Studios. So this marks the new sound that we've been able to create. And this is really our, our imprint, our, our DNA, because it's our space. It's our drums, it's our, it's our mics, it's our own guitar amps, all this stuff. Uh, sometimes I track at home. I've got a little setup here and my neighbors don't complain, so thank God for that. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do some of the guitar work there. But yeah, uh, essentially these two singles are the first singles since the 2018 album, The Pen Is Mightier. And uh, that was done in a very profesh studio and stuff. Uh, They they do some of the biggest acts. uh, uh, And and they they even do regional jobs or even international jobs. Go to Malaysia because we have this nice mix of... We we, we have the... um, labor capability or, or, or the, the smart people to do stuff. Sorry if I'm not too eloquent at this time of night. <laughs> and on the other hand, they also have the the labor structure of Malaysia, which tends to be cheaper on an international basis, uh, but still good enough when you when you recontextualize that locally. So this is a very good studio, Maverick Studios. That's where we did the Pen is Mighty. But we felt like we needed to move on from that and and, and go through our own journey and a big part of that is uh shaquille my band member the, the guy who plays bass
1: right it looks yeah. like
0: what everybody says yeah uh so his mom he's played
1: piano music. i remember that his mom taught him she, piano and that's how he plays such good bass <laughs>
0: <laughs> it makes a lot of sense right yeah. he actually plays a lot of piano as well so uh I don't know if we credit him officially anyway, but a lot of the piano work sometimes, he's the one that comes I wouldn't credit up him it. if yeah. you
1: don't have to. It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not worth the typing time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it was good to have that space. And uh, I think pretty happy with the sound that we've developed so far. It sounds, it sounds really
1: uh, good. It sounds a lot more individual. The like I've I've done some recording as well with very professional musicians and in professional studios, and you in a way you're outsourcing a lot of the way you things the way you want it to sound. Somebody else takes control of that, and they deliver a very professional product that you would never have been able to do yourself. And you go, wow, that's amazing. Is that what I wanted? It's kind of like when you go and get a really nice haircut and you show them a picture. You're like, I want this. And then you leave with a different haircut. And it's still amazing. <laughs> but you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this in a couple of weeks because it's not what I, I – I don't know how to make my hair like that. So um, I, I've ran into that a couple of times in the past. And that's what I'm doing right now too. I'm, I'm building my own studio it's, it's, it's a combination of of Gorilla Studio, but with, um, in Japan, getting some really professional gear involved. I got enough mics, uh, and then I know enough musicians, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick off when I can get the uh, Universal Audio X4. It's a 4XLR desktop thing, and then I just use some other peripheral ones for drum recordings, but then go to studios around town in Tokyo, where there's so many of them, with and they're all soundproofed and stuff, and you can get you can get a lot of work done in there. So it's a combination of uh, getting some, some top line professional gear and out and then going into rooms and, and you know and then bringing it back to the box and, and developing oh, it that cool. way uh, with some yeah. not just with goofy plugins but channel strips and, and things nice. like that. And I think that's good enough. You know, I was looking at an SSL um, console. Uh, for recording, it's a hundred thousand dollars. Or you can, or you can spend ninety dollars on on a plugin that gets you eighty five percent of the way there. I'm not Steely Dan at this point, man. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm pretty happy to save ninety nine thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is to to get the eighty percent of my of my way there. You know, so there's the there's these new ideas coming along where we don't need to outsource that final that last mile of our creative process to somebody else so you guys are developing your own studios so how are you um how are you how are you developing it to make it your own
0: well we're fortunate that uh one of the well okay let me put it this way without without ratting out anybody nice uh (laughs) no rats yeah no rats man we don't like snitches no Um, Snitches get the, the rewards. The space is essentially, yeah, <laughs> What was I going to say? Uh, the studio space is essentially ours to work with. Okay, so that means that we're not just, it's not just the mics and the preamps and, and whatever. It's also the room yeah. that we have.
1: Yeah, that's important.
0: So what you hear is really that room on the drums and all that kind of stuff. Yes, there's a little bit of post-processing, but it's really going back to, I think, how a lot of things were recorded in the 90s, especially for rock music. And if you hear the stems on those tracks, right, from the Sound Gardens and, and even the Foo Fighters, and you hear the roars, and you just hear the quality that they get just on the drums, yeah. that's what we're trying to to aim for. That's a yeah. good
1: one. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah.
0: I can't say that we're a hundred percent there for sure, but at least we know this is our sound. And if we can fix it in post to some degree that we make it possible, or at least we get that nice little bit of tape saturation, uh, that we kind of get it all to kind of gel together a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it becomes an interesting product. And I think, uh, I, 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 I hope that we're, Well, we're heading in the right direction. Yeah,
1: I think so, too. It it sounds like the right direction. And it also sounds a little bit more independent where you invest the money at first, but then you don't have to worry about raising money at a later date to fund future projects. You can it's a well, essentially, that you can tap into at any time. Um, okay, we're going to go to Faded Lights, the new song by Kyoto Protocol. You were kind enough to send this to me. Uh, I also have Nothing Lasts Forever that I regularly play uh, as I'm going into work. <laughs> oh, that's
0: cool, man. You're yeah. <laughs> trying to like cycle yourself and tell yourself, it's right. not going to last uh, forever. <laughs> they're,
1: they're, they're two good songs to play off of each other because one's kind of, um, they're both melancholic, but one's faster and one's a bit slower. But they have this really nice, thick, and juicy production quality that we're finally able to achieve on our own uh, in our own independent ways. So, faded lights, and then we'll come back and talk about something else. Faded lights.
0: Stop. Start- I do have to put it in a side note, like big props goes to Shaq because he's like the, the, the recording engineer. He's a mixing engineer, you know, all at once. He's our, he's our uh, monitor engineer as well in, in the studio. So, um, and, and I hear his raws and what he's getting as a bass sound before we even send it off for the professional mixing and stuff. Right. So a lot of stuff still gets professionally mixed and mastered somewhere else. And I'm just hearing the raws and I'm like, Damn, this sounds so much better than a lot of people's demos and stuff. Like, it's just, cool. it already sounds like 80% there, I would say. Yeah.
1: What kind of uh, preamps and stuff like that are you using?
0: What is he using? He's got some kind of, well, he's got the proper, like, XLR box and a snake that leads to another uh, section yeah, where okay. like, he's that's, got a big board and stuff. Yeah. That's
1: awesome. That's awesome if he can yeah. do that. I, That really requires a lot. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, so congratulations. So um, you are – are you still technically a quote-unquote financial worker slash economist in Kuala Lumpur?
0: Yes, I am. 14 years running.
1: 14 years. (laughs) And can you tell us – can you give us an overview – about this thing we call the job of day. Uh, what, do you, what does this entail for us? <laughs>
0: <laughs> So currently, I run a subsidiary uh, within a group that's essentially an asset management. So people give us money and we help them to invest it. And all the returns the investor gets to keep, all we ask f- for, for our services is a uh, management fee that's really, really small Uh, in comparison when we're talking about the dollars and cents. So it's a very typical asset manager model. If I'm going to maybe compare to maybe something similar in Japan, a parallel would maybe be like Nikko asset management.
1: Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Uh, Yeah, except that we only do one asset class and we do bonds.
1: Okay. Sure.
0: Yeah. So so, so we're a bond fund manager essentially. Yeah.
1: It, it, does this cover all aspects of uh of bonds? Uh
0: so we're what's called the buy side. So uh, we represent investors to help them invest in these securities. The sell side are people like the uh Subitomo Investment Bank, where they walk hand in hand with say Uniqlo and a Uniqlo how do you want to raise uh, capital today? Do you want to sell more shares in the equity markets or do you want to raise debt via the bond markets? So um, if if Uniqlo chooses to raise debt by selling bonds, then that's called the sell side. And then the buy side, that's where I come in, scrutinizes Uniqlo, "Mm, are they doing good? Are they doing bad? If I lend Uniqlo money for 10 years, will they be able to pay me back?
1: okay that kind of thing sure so yeah you basically you're you're a professional um, finance investor you're not just some like crypto day trader right <laughs> It's not the most exciting shit to hear about but it's very technical and therefore you you know what's going on um because there's a lot of crypto day traders who will just be like yeah I know about finance right so if someone's gonna listen to this podcast and that's who you are <laughs> have
0: you seen? Have you seen them on, on TikTok or, or, like, social media and stuff?
1: Yeah, they're nuts.
0: They're, like, doing these things where there's vertical video and stuff and, like, oh, yeah. how I made my millions. And they go, like, tip number one. Yeah. They
1: point their, their fingers at random points in the screen and these little pop-ups come up. And you're supposed to remember <laughs> all that and then follow through and make millions? Like, eh, I, I don't know, man. That, that seems a it's, rather it's dodgy.
0: Most- it's the most mundane of advice i tell you everybody yeah. knows you're supposed to buy that's low right. and sell yes, high it's true. freaking finance 101
1: <laughs> think twice before you invest oh <sighs> so um one okay so i work at a uh, i i used to work at a translation interpreting training school um that focused on business and stuff like that and then i worked at softbank where i was in charge of an A.I. school for A.I. engineers and um, executives at SoftBank and following A.I. markets. And this was uh, during um, SoftBank's vision fund. And I basically used that as a, a way to track what was going on with investments in the AI field and stuff like that. Now I work at a daily uh, paper in Tokyo, an English daily, and I'm all over the place in there. I'm not like some muckraker journalist. I'm, I'm doing page design here, or I'm doing um, uh, web editing there, or I'm doing some rewriting here. But basically, some days when I'm doing the economics page, business and economics, I'm scanning through hundreds and hundreds of business articles a day trying to make, I view it as the best mixtape for the world. (laughs) uh, Otherwise, you just choose the most mundane horse shit. But I always view it like this is a mixtape of the business world today for the public. And I want them to be able to look at this and go, that's a cool mixtape. So,
0: That's a good name for a segment, by the way. What Mixtape of the business world. Mixtape that's the, really that's good. Yeah, not, yeah. You should start something.
1: That's not bad. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't mind, to be honest, because the thing about markets, once you're old enough to understand them, is that there's this substrate of, of, of data that tells you whether the information you're hearing about it is important or not. Uh, whereas a lot of international news or opinionated articles, it's like, yeah, I really care about this dolphin but maybe but but the dolphin doesn't exist for a long time just for example so everybody can get riled up about a dolphin but then there's not there's not a lot more of that dolphin and eventually that dolphin story goes away and you invested all this time and energy into it but if there's like markets involved you kind of understand the importance of that news story so what i'm trying to say is that with that market substrate it gives you a real clear indication as to the value of something and whether you're not, you should be paying attention to it or not. Now, what I've noticed a lot, this is coming from the Japanese perspective, especially in the past year and a half, is that the, everybody turned off the economy so that nobody would catch the flu. And uh, then they expected to turn the economy back on, like coming into a room that you just left for a few minutes and expecting everything to just light up as per usual. That's not happening. Right now, it's so crazy, and we don't know what the hell is going on. We have Klaus Schwab in the Economic World Economic Forum where you have nothing to be happy. They just had this global world summit for governments going on where they all this crazy shit's going on. But what I've noticed a lot as I've seen this headline theme come up again and again and again, and this is the thing. Nanchara, nanchara, nanchara prevents economic recovery from happening. So, for example, high raw material costs plus weak yen threaten Japan's recovery from COVID. Or the the other one was um, lack of tourism demand prevents recovery in the industry be, after COVID. So there's this whole thing going on where they expected this... We're always being teased like there's this carrot of recovery, and then something happens, and they go, actually, that carrot isn't there because because of this thing that happened. But we all all fucking know that it's been two years of insane policy driven by who knows who, and here we are today, and I don't know what the hell is going on, but we're seeing inflation shooting up, and they're going to be like, don't worry, we'll just pay you more from the taxpayer coffers. You're like, that doesn't make sense it never made sense but you got like an 80 year old in the helm of the government driving the bus going actually it does make sense so Fwad, what the hell is going on here do you notice these trends as well in kuala Lumpur? and uh what 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 are your what are your thoughts about all this because for me it's driving me it's driving me crazy actually it's it blows my mind it makes me look at all of these elite structures that have been going on for the past 25 years and me going you guys don't know what's going on do you do
0: you (laughs) that's very very interesting um Obviously, you know outsiders study, especially in the field of economics. They study Japan quite a lot because it's a very unique case. And in many cases, they've actually set the path for um, options of 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 how monetary policy should be rolled out. Right. So, two thousand seven and eight, or sorry, the the two thousand eight nine global financial crisis in the U.S. Particularly, they were kind of stuck. They didn't know what to do because uh, they've already kept cut the Fed funds rate all the way down to zero. And, whoa, you mean we've already hit zero? There's, not, there's nothing more we can do uh, in terms of trying to stimulate the economy and make borrowing cheaper and therefore you know, um, getting velocity of money up again uh, amidst a whole uh, uh, other host of uh, after effects, but I'm not going to go into that. So then what do they do? They take a leaf out of the, the, the Japanese example and they instate in this thing called quantitative easing which basically means that the, uh, the, the central bank or the, the, the person that plays central bank, let's use the U.S. as the same example, the Federal Reserve will buy the bonds issued by the, the U.S. Treasury uh, and therefore creating money in the process. So if I held U.S. Treasuries and then the Fed comes, uh, Powell comes to me and says, hey, can I buy it off of you? I say, yeah, sure. I uh, have my treasury because I get cash. And that's the cash injection into the economy, right? That was actually started in Japan. So in a, in a sense, uh, Japan is quite far ahead in some of these precepts of of, of these things uh, that have actually worked in a lot of other examples. And you know what's funny? Even though Japan has like an extra 10 years of this experimentation, and you're right, it is experimentation. It's not so much that they don't exactly know what they're doing. Well, I mean, sorry, yes, definitely they don't know exactly what they're doing. But that's the tricky part about monetary policy anyways. It's always been... For the past hundred years, well,
1: the um, uh, the 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 BOJ head is always saying we're just going to do quantitative easing until we reach two percent inflation, and then we'll. But (laughs) you kind of know that that's those are two different things. Like that's what you like they they know what they're doing, but they don't know what they're doing, or what they're saying isn't what they're doing. Like they're going to do quantitative easing, and they say two percent inflation, but there's also this maybe a hundred other things that they're not actually saying,
0: right? So the tricky part about that is, and I feel like this is not actually spoken about in financial media a whole lot. So my analysis of the past uh, 30 years or so in Japan, the one reason why a lot of this stuff has not really had the complete desired effect, right, is because central banks, technically their mandate is limited. At a certain point, you have... A hard line in the sand is drawn and the baton passes over to the government side or the fiscal side. Right. So what always happens is that BOJ actually does a pretty good job of setting the concrete or the foundations. The piles have gone into the soil. You have a very solid foundation. And then, uh, you know, on that foundation, you're supposed to inject the economy with growth. By, th- through government spending. It's something that's worked um, it, countless number of times. And, and this is not just a, a, a post-90s bubble pop thing. This has been working for like um, uh, Marshall Plan, post-World War II, etc., etc. et cetera, right? You, see, you have many cases that's working. But what happens in Japan is that suddenly the government side comes in and they go, oh, okay, this is all well and good. Growth is starting to come back just a little bit. It's time to tax people. Let's raise the VAT. Oh my God, the number of times that they've done that, they've shot themselves in the foot so many times. So I'd I'd like to kind of set the record straight for the BOJ. I think they're actually doing a pretty good job of trying to stabilize and and put those piles in the ground and having a nice foundation. It's just that the government always comes around and goes like, oh, you mean um, it's starting to look good now? Maybe we're supposed to build this house with four beams, but we could take away one now, taxation. Yeah. And they keep doing it. It keeps shooting the go- It keeps shooting the economy in the foot. Yeah, but we do... I've got a question for you, actually. Sure, I've got go a question for it. For you, yeah, right? do it, yeah. So, so the, uh, obviously, this uh, Japanese economic conundrum is one of the biggest questions in the world. And I think, from what I've read, it boils down to two things that they could easily do to, to, to solve it in a relatively quick amount of time, by which I mean maybe five to ten years kind of thing. And both are kind of structural issues, okay? they boiled it down to two possible solutions. Number one, allow more immigrants in to fulfill that labor gap. And then, you know, the whole thing, population, etc., etc. Et Number two, change uh, the structural issues that are preventing women from participating in a meaningful way in the economy. And for a while, it seemed that Japan was not willing to do either of these. They're like, no, yeah. I'd rather grow at zero than do either of these things. And then suddenly in uh, Abe's, was it his was second term or, or, or somewhere in the middle, he kind of goes, okay, you know what? Instead of letting the foreigners in, we're going to do the woman thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so, yeah. My, so my, my question is, sure, has that worked? Has that carried over to... To, to the new era the, the the new prime minister is that something they still want to do yeah i think What's it happening?
1: is um the 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 push for women is 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 definitely a go it's definitely going ahead um the thing is is that the population of japan is very aged um so you have already in the upper tiers of the population demographics it's already been settled and all that's going to be um male male driven and and so when you got the the 50s 40s and unders um that are pretty much open to who who cares if you're a woman as long as you're good at your job uh uh sorry uh, if you're meritorious about it it doesn't matter who you are just do the job and we'll find you and uh, that's all good but the amount of people in that sphere now are very are are shrinking dramatically, dramatically. So there's that. So you're always because of the nature of the demographics of the country. Even if you get women participation up fifties to 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 twenties to, to maximum percent, it's impossible to offset it. To the large to to the older demographics, which which are still largely keeping their jobs and things like that. So, what are you going to do about that? You can't do anything about that until all of those people die. And so you're going to have a, a literally the, you're going to have a a, a a more equal society, but with a with a much reduced population about it. Um, regarding the um, uh, foreigner influx. The Abe administration in 2018, 2019, um, maybe a little bit before that, did implement uh, a, a policy of trying to increase up to 500,000 um, non-skilled or low-skilled laborers from the Indochinese chinese peninsula, especially from Vietnam, to come to Japan to do two or three years of technical training, um, get a job and then go back to Vietnam, ideally. Maybe some of them who were really good can stick behind. And that's kind of how Japan develops its labor field when it needs to. Um, Mass migration simply doesn't work in a place like Japan. It never has and it never will. There's not enough land um, and there's not enough space uh, even when there is land. So there's that. But when COVID hit, basically what happened was um, a lot of these Vietnamese people, their jobs evaporated. They were destitute, and a lot of them turned to crime if they couldn't go back home selling. They would sell drugs in Japan or commit crimes to get by. Um, no no judgment on my part. That's just part of the policy. So um, I'm not That's sure. A shame. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a shame. So... It's, it's really hard to do that type of thing in a, in a very unique monocultural country. Um, and even after I've been here for like 15 years in Japan, I don't really group a lot with, um, with other people of my same, uh, you know, ethnic background and stuff like that. We tend to just kind of dissolve into the country, those of us who stay here long enough. Um, so to answer the question, they tried. Uh, the women are going to become uh, more and more significant. They already are. Most of my bosses in my life in Japan have have had women bosses, more men than women, but still, I, I'm not I'm not the boss. But there's women bosses, so there's that, right? Like it's not like I'm bossing around women. I've had women bosses in Japan my entire life here. Um, yeah, but so we'll see. But again, they're dealing with this in, intense. An intense demographic crisis and it's uh, that that in itself is is part of the pickle
0: yeah that's a strong headwind, isn't it yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, a lot of those problems don't really apply to malaysia which is why i was a bit more curious to hear about the japanese example if we talk about that uh reverse funnel oh sorry like that the, the funnel shaped um demographic, upside down
1: uh, triangle yeah of demographics yeah, yeah. yeah
0: we're still a pretty young economy average age when i checked a few years ago was 26 um and uh, i think what's really our problem is corruption because we are facing essentially what the philippines faced with marcos in the 70s to the 80s oh kind of really thing. it's that bad yeah. whoa i wouldn't say it's your door's gonna
1: get kicked in you
0: <laughs> the good thing is is that we actually had an election the last time we had a general election the opposition won and that was the first time that opposition won in malaysia for like 60 years pretty much right so you had kind of uh, i think it was important because people needed to realize that yes the government can change the institutions will still stay intact and uh there's not going to be mass rioting on the streets and life will go on as normal. And Malaysians are good at that. Life going on as normal. What is a bit unfortunate is that um, maybe it came at a bad time, but the new government that came in was trying to do the right thing, trying to tighten up the purse strings and trying to tighten up corruption particularly. And it started to have an effect. I mean, imagine in two years, Suddenly, uh, people were scared to park their cars illegally. People uh, were scared to speed on the roads or all these kinds of things because they realized like, oh, okay, we're we're, we're culpable to the law now, finally. And then uh, I don't know whether it was a combination of bad business prospects slash uh, Malaysia has a very big business lobby and maybe businessmen weren't happy. So they were like, oh, you know, the new government's terrible. And um, it's funny because... Before 2018, these were the people who were singing the highest praises for the opposition government to set the country back straight. I'm sure you've heard of one DB's scandal, $2.6 billion U.S. dollars, yeah. uh, unaccounted for, and kind of essentially traced back to our former prime minister.
1: Is that the one that um, Leonardo DiCaprio was involved in? Uh,
0: they, they, yeah, they, they had a production house that funded the Wolf of Wall Street. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, um yeah, I imagine all that happened. So, like, okay, come and save us, opposition. 2018 comes, and then, okay, all of them go to jail, and da 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 da. And then two years later, they didn't even get to serve out a full term. It was like, no, we're making the, the, the country's prospects worse. The, the government machinery doesn't work just because they could no longer bribe the same people. Oh, and maybe there was still a little bit of teething issues to work out, right? So, they didn't even let it play out one full term. And then they did this uh, e- essentially, there was. Uh, very little that they could do, but also there was, uh, I do have to rightfully point out that there was politicking within the opposition as well that caused it to, to break into a few pieces. So because of that, they called for some kind of emergency vote, and then the guys were kicked out. The guys who were in there for 60 years get voted back into power uh, just within another two-year cycle. And... If two years since then, everything has out, uh, undone itself. Uh, people just park on the street. Nobody really cares about getting fined. I'm pretty sure that um, all these bribery and stuff like that is, is is back in full swing. In fact, we've started to uh, feel the effects of climate change here. Some places that never often got flooded before are starting to get flooded now and then suddenly exposed how oh, the government, the current government the one of two years now is uh awfully inept in dealing with this kind of stuff um trying to do photo ops when really they should have just put their money towards actually helping people uh but yet there is enough discontent with i suppose the the dollars and cents side of things between that 2018 and 2020 uh, we're about to have an election this year it's going to be quite interesting and most of the 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 what do you call the weather vines are pointing towards the 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 bad guys still staying in power like if i can put it that way no maybe not bad guys but the corrupt guys still staying in power yeah
1: that's interesting
0: some people like corruption here it's crazy oil is
1: is a very corrupt industry isn't it like i was thinking like um (laughs) oil attracts a lot of people to it which is good but there's also a lot of corruption like when you're when we're talking about japan's niko and nomura securities you're not going to have some guy from like cameroon come to japan and understand how to handle the you know japan's you know financial systems like that but oil is oil and you sell it and it makes money so there's that
0: yeah, we're, we're fortunate that in Malaysia, we're not 100% corrupted by oil because it only covers about 10 to 20% of our whole government spending. Yeah, so we're not fully relying on it. We're not like a welfare state, say, like Saudi Arabia, where like 100% all of it is paid yeah. by oil. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: They put up some solar so I panels guess and that's like, a blessing see, we're this. divesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it's, trust me, it's not, by, it's not by any clever judgment. It was, it was by having no other choice. Yeah. So we, yeah, we were one of the Asian tigers in the 90s and stuff, built up a pretty big manufacturing um, uh, capability. And even today, like a lot of the AMD chips, Intel has um, uh, has an outfit here as well. So I think what serves Asia uh, supply routes is actually, Malaysia is quite an important part of it. And with the US-China trade war uh, of 2018 and hasn't really reversed out just yet, uh, Malaysia becomes an even more important player because number one, Malaysia has a significant Chinese population, about 20-ish percent. And they uh, are overrepresented in business. And they are obviously the business owners that are involved in that part of the supply chain and all those kind of things. The Malays, uh, they are 60% of the population, that includes myself. And it's kind of divided between rural Uh, middle class and the upper echelon class which tend to be a bit more political or at least uh, uh, politically related in nature and not so much uh, business driving although there are exceptions to the rule yeah yeah those are the major driving factors yeah
1: interesting we'll have to continue this conversation another time my studio time is running out Fwad where can people find you (laughs) Uh, or your band Uh,
0: well, the easiest way is to go on uh, kyotoband.com. So that's K-Y-O-T-O-B-A-N-D.com. Uh, and then you'll find all our socials there. But we are, we're Kyoto Band on Instagram and all these other places as well. Uh, so yeah, please do look us up. And uh, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty friendly. Pretty. So I, I don't know what, what you score that out of 10. But yeah, come and say hi. Uh, listen to a few tracks. See if you like it. Um, Good old Rock and Roll.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's one of my go-tos and has been for years Fouad, it's been a pleasure Thank you so much, have a great time Thank everybody Thank you very, very much And uh, MatthewPMBigelow.com You've been listening to the Japan Web Podcast com is revised for your eyes Make sure to go check it out at MatthewPMBigelow.com You've been listening to the Japan Web Podcast Take your easy everybody Until then, safe travels and Listen to every TikTok crypto investor you can. They are the angels sent from God. This has not been Financial Advice. <laughs> <laughs>